welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Daphne Marchenko. She's a postdoctoral research fellow at the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics, and she completed a PhD at the University of Cambridge, which is actually where she and I met for the first time. And in her PhD, she focused on genomics and the American education system. Just to start off with, how did you become interested in studying the intersection between genomics and education in the first place? It's a bit of a long story, but I will try and be as concise as I can. Uh, I went to Stanford for undergrad, and I studied medical anthropology there under Duena Fulwiley. I learned, started learning about genetics and how genetics research affects people's identity, their understandings of themselves, mainly first started with population ancestry and trying to understand how population ancestry impacted people's understanding of themselves. And then I watched a documentary called DNA Dreams, which followed the uh, BGI Cognitive Genomics Lab, and I found it fascinating. And while I was kind of going along that path of interest in genetics research, I also started working for a nonprofit organization called Camp Phoenix, which works to provide uh, summer learning programming for low-income youth in the Bay Area. And so these kind of two interests, this passion for education and especially for educational equity and this interest in genetics kind of merged together when I got to Cambridge to begin my PhD. So those are the kind of two big buckets that influenced my work. But more specifically, uh, I started my own experiences growing up in the American educational system also had a big impact on me. When I was in third grade, I was in the state of Virginia, Northern Virginia. Uh, and at that in that school district, they test all kids in the third grade for gifted education programming. My family had no conception of what that was. I'm the oldest of four children. It was very new territory for us. Needless to say, I did not get selected for gifted education. But later on in my education trajectory, after we had moved out of the country and then come back, I was placed in all regular classes. And it became clear to the teachers there that I was in a level that was too low for me. But because gifted education tracking starts in the third grade, it was an impossible path for me to enter into. And so I got interested in gifted education, the history behind that, and that led me to the history of IQ testing, Lewis Terman, who was at Stanford, uh, and, and this conflation between race and ability. And so that's what led me to the research that I ended up doing at Cambridge. I'd love to hear more about the the history of IQ testing. I, I'm sure that not much has changed since when you were testing the third grade. I, I think that probably those practices still go on today. And it frankly just doesn't make that much sense to choose someone's schooling destiny based on a, a test that we know has, um, you know, has a lot of issues with it to begin with. What, what, what is, and I know a lot of your work focuses on the historical elements of this as well. And, and history often echoes with what we face today. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and, and what's changed and what hasn't. I think one of the important things that often remain silent from conversations on IQ testing is how intertwined it was with trying to ensure separation between racial and socioeconomic groups. Right. IQ testing really took off in the early 20th century, late 19th century. And in the United States came over from the United, the United Kingdom. So um, 
Francis Galton, who wrote Hereditary Genius, is considered one of the founders of behavioral genetics. He is also a scholar who is very interested in this idea of intelligence being passed down by generations, this idea that intelligence is a heritable quality. And part of his thinking was that people should be separated uh, because we don't want to kind of dilute the genetic stock of individuals who are higher socioeconomic status who are going to elite educational institutions by having them intermarry uh, with people who are low income, predominantly from his perspective, people of color. Um, and so that thinking started to inform how IQ tests were used in schools. You know, I talked previously about Lewis Terman. He is considered the, one of the fathers of gifted education. He saw uh, IQ testing as a way to identify children for gifted testing and also had staunch beliefs that African-American and Hispanic children were genetically inferior to white children and should be in separate classrooms, uh, kind of segregation, but segregation according to your cognitive ability. And so when we think about the use of IQ testing today, we often uh, think of it as kind of a blank slate that now that we are in the 21st century, it is a series of practices that are divorced from the history that gave birth to it. And recognizing that history is really important for understanding not only why we see or continue to see racial and socioeconomic disparities in the American education system, but many education systems globally, uh, but also why taking those tests as face value, objective, unalterable truth is also highly problematic. And I mean, even there are wild differences in test variation, right? So if you took it today and you took it a week from now, um, it, it would be completely different. I know some of your research has been around how school teachers perceive the the impact of genetics on IQ intelligence um, performance in school. Is is that starting to be used in the same way as an IQ test, or is it more like it's? Um, it's becoming part of the conversation. How, what, what have you found in terms of the way genetics is starting to be used? Because one of the concerns that I have is this is something that could be done even sooner than the third grade, right? And if you get the wrong idea that it could be used to, to move people down one path or another, then um, you, know, you, you start making this decision even earlier than eight years old, which is early to begin with. Right. Yeah, it's definitely a conversation that is starting. So in 2013, Catherine Asbury and Robert Plowman published a book that was intended for educators and policymakers called G is for Genes. This book introduces this idea of, they call it genetically sensitive, genetically informed schooling. In this new envisioned school system, a child could get genotyped. So, you know, the parents might take them to their local pediatrician, might get a cheek swab, and then they are genotyped. Uh, and that genotype might help to identify if, for example, they're predisposed to develop dyslexia or ADHD. And Asbury and Plowman argue that taking genetics into account will help not only to create individualized education plans tailored using students' genetic data, but also better serve students in identifying their strengths and weaknesses. So I came across that book just by chance when I was kind of browsing the uh Cambridge libraries and thought it was a fascinating attempt 
to envision how genetic data could be used in education. I mean, they went as far as to pro provide, propose 11 policy proposals for how you might implement a genetically sensitive school system. Of course, the research as it stands today does not allow for the actual implementation of precision education, genetically informed education system. There are an array of different words to describe it, but there is this idea that if we start this conversation now, we will be better prepared when the research does get there to be able to implement it quickly. And so I was interested in the number of public facing materials that behavioral genetics researchers had started to produce directly to for educators and policymakers. I wanted to know how educators and policymakers were interpreting those materials, what their thoughts were, and specifically for educators, how receiving information about genetics and the role that it might play in things like educational attainment or learning disabilities impacted their understandings in the American context of the racial and socioeconomic disparities in the education system. What's interesting about it is the way you described uh, the way you described it. It seems like it could be used in a really positive way, like you say, identifying likelihood of dyslexia or ADHD or something like that, and and creating a tailored plan. What I'm wondering though is how much of this is is equally being used or sort of weaponized, um, you know, in a in a scientifically racist tendency. Because what I what I imagine because I see this whenever there's a paper that comes out around polygenic scores and, and educational attainment or IQ or something like that is you have some people who are thinking about it in a very measured and, and, you know, primarily positive way of how can we use this for good. But then there's a whole other corner of the internet that's using it and completely, you know, taking things out of context or, or misconstruing the point completely. Were, were you able to, because I can imagine that there are groups in the United States, for example, that might, take a small piece of research, kind of convolute it in some way, and then create a propaganda, essentially, or some kind of material that they'd send to educators that, that completely misses the point. Is, is, were you able to figure out whether there's what the mix of people using it for, for positive or negative reasons might be? Absolutely. I think what I found as I started my research and progressed through it was that there are kind of different camps in terms of how people think yeah. that this information could be used. You know, there's one cohort that sees the use of genetic data, specifically polygenic risk scores, as a tool for conducting social science research, and it, it stops there. Right. There are individuals who think of using genetic data for this idea of precision education, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of overlap, at least that I've seen, between that group and the ones who are interested in using it purely for social science research. They are not completely divorced from each other. There is a bit of crossover. And then of course, there are individuals who are interested in using genetic data to, for instance, prove that almost the one drop rule when it comes to intelligence, that people who are uh, more African-American or um, you know communities of color, that they are genetically cognitively different from white and Asian populations. And that is, that is abhorrent research that has no grounding in scientific evidence, um, but it continues to be used and misused. And so as I was going through my research and I was seeing these different 
potential uses of genetic data, I started advocating for something that I call adversarial collaboration um, in hopes of encouraging socially responsible communication of genetics findings because part of my research was interviewing behavioral genetics researchers, trying to understand what was the research that they were doing, why were they doing it, what did they think some of the intended and unintended consequences of the research was. And so adversarial collaboration is meant to be a joint research effort between individuals of different disciplines or even more fundamentally who have potentially opposing viewpoints. Um, and the hope is that you will be able to produce a piece of research that is very clear about what the different sides of the debate are, you know, maybe where people stand, but in producing a more comprehensive work is producing a work that's more accessible to uh, communities or maybe sides of the aisles that typically talk past each other rather than with each other. And so one of my endeavors was to write an adversarial collaborative paper with some scholars at Stanford about genetics and education and what it means in the context of an ugly history and a very uncertain future. And so my current efforts are around encouraging socially responsible communication of polygenic risk scores, of genome-wide association studies, um, and making sure that researchers are as clear as they can be about what their findings can and cannot say and can and cannot be used for and what they should not be used for as well. Yeah, I, I think that's great. With the with the adversarial collaboration work that you've been a part of, what were the two positions that the you and the other group were coming in on and, and did did you all kind of I'm sure you changed your your viewpoints at least in subtle ways throughout the process. What was that about and what was it like? Yeah, so I mean it it originally started because one of who ended up being my co-authors I had interviewed as part of my doctoral dissertation and it was, I think, refreshing for both of us to have a kind of frank and open conversation. And so from that initial conversation, we thought about, you know, what would it look like to explore writing together? You know, I'm coming from a more critical perspective, more um, bioethics type of background. And I was really interested in, you know, what are the intended and unintended consequences of the research who might it harm in a world where there are already specific communities that do get harmed by this kind of research more often than not? Um, and and my co-authors were quantitative researchers who are engaged in conducting genome-wide association studies and polygenic risk scores. And so we decided that all of us coming from schools of education would sit down and try and think about okay, what is genetics saying about education? And what are some of the promises and what are some of the pitfalls? And really just trying to present what's happening out in the field and what are things to keep in mind and what are some actions or recommendations that we might be able to bring to the field to ensure that we don't repeat past histories of injustice. And you know, adversarial collaboration ended up being one of those recommendations. I should, of course, offer the caveat that to have a successful adversarial collaboration, you need to have people who are open and willing to listen to each other. It's not going to work if you have two people who are completely siloed, who are not willing to move or to hear the other side. And, you know, we did have some discussions where we were not in 100 percent alignment on things, but 
I think we respected each other enough to know when to take a step back and kind of leave that conversation for another day and come back and revisit it. And I think we found that the piece that we ended up producing spoke to education researchers. It spoke to these genome-wide association study researchers. It spoke to policymakers. We had a wider audience, I think, as a result of doing this endeavor together. It sounds like it really requires very mature adults who are willing to hear the other person's side and and empathize a little bit. It's not something that two people that are completely entrenched in in their positions could even do, which it seems like a a great way to tackle challenging things. What I've always found frustrating about um, the genetic side of this is you you often get people in two very black and white camps of either um, only the truth matters in quotes. I can do science, any kind of science, and as long as it's good, then I can publish it and I don't have to worry about it. And then there's the other camp, which is, um, you know, often goes the other direction of we shouldn't be doing research in this at all because it's, um, you know, fraught with historical issues. But I, I feel like it's, um, it's, it's closer to the middle, which is what you say. You can't ignore it, but equally you can't, um, you know, just run an association study, publish the results and, and say, good luck, everyone interpreting it. You have to kind of think about the, the broader societal implications. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one thing that some genome-wide association studies have started to do is publish FAQs alongside their papers, which in kind of more simple language are explaining, yeah. you know, a executive summary of the paper, can this be used to make any sort of individual level predictions? Did you find the gene for X? You know, what are things that your research is saying? What are things that your research is yeah. not saying? And I think that those are, that's kind of a low threshold to try and ensure socially responsible communication. But there definitely is a sentiment, and I did see it when I was interviewing some researchers, that there, that the feeling of the onus is not on me to make sure that this research is not misused. I don't intend to misuse it. So it that's the extent of my involvement in that. Yeah. So so what is the current um, kind of state of the art in terms of the science of you know, take polygenic risk scores and and education? What you know, what is what can we do? What can we definitely not do? And and what does the kind of five to 10 year horizon on that look like? Honestly, I'm not sure if we know what the five to 10 year horizon looks like just because the field moves so quickly. I mean, if we took a step back and looked at 2017, when I think it was 2017, the genome factor came out. It's a book that was written by Dalton Conley and Jason Fletcher that kind of introduces this new field of social science genomics and social science genomics is I suppose the simplest way to describe it, and and maybe some people wouldn't agree with it, but I see it as behavioral genetics, but focusing on social behaviors and outcomes and as a tool that some people believe could be used in social science research. So it would be things like study into income, into educational attainment, into social mobility or household deprivation, concepts that we typically think of as very socially and environmentally informed. But if you look at at that book, which kind of covers, you know, here's where the field is now and here's the latest studies and what they mean, things have evolved so much since then. And it's it's not been that long. So I think it's hard to know um, what it'll look like in five to 10 years. But in terms of where we are now, we, as I mentioned earlier, are not 
able to uh, meaningfully use polygenic risk scores at the individual level to create this idea of an individualized education plan that uses genetic data. The most recent polygenic risk score for educational attainment predicts up to, I believe it's 9% of differences between individuals, which is for social science research, a non-negligible amount. Right. But I have at least personally have not seen that being used for anything aside from yeah. generating more polygenic risk scores and trying to get uh, larger and larger sample sizes to try and increase the predictive validity of these GWAS studies. So where we are right now is kind of still yeah. in this exploratory phase where we're trying to increase population sample sizes. Um, and I think another thing worth mentioning is that the majority of GWAS studies that are run are using individuals of European ancestry. Um, and there are a number of reasons for why that is the case. But it, again, um, speaks to this historical underserving of communities of color. You know, if we were to get to a stage where we learned that using genetic data in education was valuable and beneficial to students, the question remains of who is it valuable and beneficial for I think hearing you say that there are a lot of parallels between the challenges in precision education and precision medicine, because the same debates are being had of mm -hmm. polygenic risk scores for heart attack um, look useful in research papers. But everyone's saying we, we don't really know until we try it in a hospital setting or, or a you know primary care setting and see if using this genetic score, which it, you know could find another 5% of people who are at risk for an early stage heart attack uh, works. I think one of the issues, though, is you can test that in health systems and clinical trials and all sorts of things. But what is the equivalent of a clinical trial for the education system, right? It's not a uh, it's not as easy. Children can't opt into this themselves. So it's their parents who are making the decision. And, it, you know, what is the what is the risk analysis of if it doesn't work or, you know, if you send a child down the wrong path because you've applied a score that that doesn't really work in practice there's no you know it's not an easy way to correct that is are there any schools that are essentially thinking about running these experiments or is that something that's discussed uh, or or kind of debated in any way so the conversation about using genetic data in education has made more inroads in the United Kingdom than it has in the US okay. to my knowledge the U.S. there has been very little uh, con public conversation about this. But after GS for Genes was published in 2013, Robert Plowman was asked to speak about genetics and education in the Houses of Parliament, which is, you know, a step that has not been taken in the U.S. And so um, I think that the U.K. is a lot more primed to implement this if and when it does happen. Plowman also received a grant, I believe it was last year, which was meant to try and take uh, polygenic risk scores of students who were coming from low-income, disadvantaged backgrounds, but maybe had a high polygenic risk score for educational attainment, and try and invest a lot of resources in them to help them achieve that genetic potential. I cannot speak to where that is right now. I just know that that grant had been um, awarded to them. 
But, you know, there is this, I think what's been so interesting for me is, and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, that the language around talking about using genetics and education can be very positive and in some ways mirrors the current conversations we have in education absent genetic data. So, you know, we in education recognize that every student is different. We talk about this idea of individualized education, of culturally relevant pedagogy, of student-centered learning. And what has been fascinating is to see those same words used in the genetics research community to describe the utility of using genetic data in education. And so I think that that kind of slippage between what education researchers think about as important to education without genetics on their horizon and what genetic researchers are using, at least I found with teachers, seem to make them more open to this idea of using genetic data in education, which was really interesting. And I think for me, is a little bit it's a little bit dangerous <laughs> to be using words so similarly in a way where maybe people are not truly understanding what it would mean to use genetic data in education. They're hearing, oh, individualized learning or student-centered learning. Like, I know already that those are good things to bring to education. Yeah, and it's a little bit of a Trojan horse, isn't it? Because you kind of wrap it up in this language that so everybody can get behind an individualized learning plan. Um, But if it's a blunt instrument, like a genetic risk score that doesn't, you know, hasn't been validated, we don't really know what, I think one of the challenges is it's, you don't really know what you're correlating with, or, you know, you have something like IQ that is manifested through a test, or, um, you know, like you mentioned things like income earlier, and you have something so far away, like genetics, and we don't understand what's happening in between that right. that makes the link between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you've written about the, is it the company genomic prediction that yes. was in the news a lot a few years ago that um, what I, what I get concerned about is in the U S there's um, there's a lot more opportunity for commercial mm-hmm. opportunities around these things. So if they, if somebody pitches this into private, school system or, or, you know, private, um, you know, just, just to parents potentially, um, the level of the level of scientific rigor that's required may not be there yet. Is this, is this something that, that you've seen or, or have been concerned about essentially could somebody market and, and produce a test like this, even if, even if as scientists, we know it's probably not effective or appropriate to use, but, um, but I think parents would pay for it, right. If the, if it was marketed in the right way. Yeah, I mean, and that was part of the impetus behind what got me into this field is I was thinking, okay, there's this idea of precision education. Who's it going to go to first? Yeah. It's probably not going to go to the low income kids. It's probably going to go to, to students who are in private schools where there's more autonomy over the education system and how it runs, where there are parents who can be very pushy and, and want to advocate for certain things for their students. Um, and who have the money and means and resources to do it. So um, absolutely, one of my concerns was that if there is a world in which precision education becomes a possibility, it is probably going to further uh, educational inequity. Genomic prediction is one example of this commercialization of 
genetic data, this idea that through in vitro fertilization, parents might be able to deselect, they advertise being able to deselect for short stature or deselect for low cognitive ability. So they're kind of reversing it. Like instead of saying, I'm going to select for my child to be tall and highly intelligent, I'm going to select that they are not short and don't have any cognitive, low cognitive ability. And that caused a level, I I think it's fair to say, a level of anxiety within the genetics research community, particularly those who see genome-wide association studies being used for social sciences research and stopping there. Not only because the research is not yet at a stage where you can reliably do that. As you mentioned, we don't understand necessarily well what the causal pathways are, you know, what's, and, and not only that, but in polygenic risk scores, you're identifying um, genetic, you're aggregating essentially genetic variants that are correlated with whatever behavior outcome you are interested in studying, um, but you don't understand what those genetic variants might be proxies for, you know, if they are also related to something else. So we just don't understand a lot and a lot that would make it impossible for us to reliably translate polygenic risk scores on things like cognitive ability to in vitro fertilization. Uh, But that doesn't stop the American drive to, you know, make money and um, commercialize, those things are still going to happen. And I think, you know, going back to this idea of, is the onus on researchers to think about how their research might be used or misused? Genomic prediction is one example of a firm that does have people who are conducting genetics research, who are interested in genetics research behind it. Um, but are not necessarily those who are supported by the majority of the genetics research community. And so do these researchers need to be more vocal about calling out a firm like genomic prediction and um, making sure that the public knows what are the pitfalls of of trying to go into territory like this? You had a recent essay, collaborative essay with Aisha Rashid, I think, around human genome editing. And and I read that and you made a really interesting point, which was that in the US, there really isn't a ban on human gene editing. There is sort of a de facto ban because the FDA has policies that prohibit gene editing in, I guess, in um, embryos as part of clinical trials. But I can imagine there's a lot of gray area where, you know, would it would a company like this be regulated by the FDA. And obviously, if they're not in the US, they're they're not regulated by the mm-hmm. FDA. So I can see a potential for a real international arbitrage or, or arms race where this kind of um, approach operates outside jurisdictions where where it's banned, um, because it's not going to be banned everywhere, right? There's, uh, there's always going to be a, an, a country that takes advantage of the fact that everywhere else has has banned it is uh, w- do you think it would be the FDA or what I'd love to hear more about the work on that essay because I think it's a it's very topical yeah so Aisha who uh, was my classmate at Stanford she just graduated from Berkeley Law so she's the legal scholar that really understands the right. nitty-gritty parts of of that collaborative piece um, but I think what our aim was in writing that was just to bring attention to the fact that we are not set up to have really effective ethical oversight of human genome editing. 
Um, and there are reasons for why we're not set up for it, but we need to prepare ourselves for the reality of that happening at some point. And, you know, we had had conversations where we'd gone back and forth about thinking, you know, would it make sense to have a kind of global moratorium or a, you know, U.S. moratorium on human genome editing with with certain stipulations because there are uses that I think people would agree are valuable and worthwhile and relatively low risk. Um, should we try and see if there's a mechanism by which scientific researchers can kind of monitor themselves either through public shaming or the allocation of research funds? Um, but I think more than anything, we just wanted to get the conversation started and say, we, we have not been thinking about this. We need to be thinking about this, the way this country is set up. We have, as you mentioned, this kind of de facto regulation of human genome editing, but there are plenty of loopholes. And the, those, that same um, frame of thinking applies to thinking about how genetic data might be used for workplace discrimination, for healthcare discrimination. You know, we are currently at a stage where maybe those safeguards remain in place, but uh, as soon as the technology advances, as soon as we learn more, and, and in a way where people want to act on that information more, then those those loopholes are going to be found very easily. And we need to proactively try and plug them. I, I had a kind of meta question for you, because when I was getting ready for this interview, I, I realized that I've never really thought about how how a trained bioethicist actually thinks about answering the question of, is this ethical or not? Most of us who don't have any background in this just say, I think this is ethical or I think this is unethical and, and spit out the reasons why. But I feel like you must have some kind of framework for, for in a relatively structured way saying, here is the, here is the question and, you know, here are the potential different perspectives or kind of pillars of ethics. Is, is there a kind of structured process that you take when you approach a question like, you know, should, should human genome editing for, yeah, IQ be, you know, be available. Um, that's probably an easier one, but we could come up with harder ones. So I think there, there's something called, the shorthand is ELSI, but it stands for the ethical, social, legal implications. Uh, and re more recently, policy has been tagged on to that. So any topic that I'm interested in, I look at it first from what are the ethical, what are the social, what are the legal, and what are the policy implications of this research uh, to try and make a, a kind of more informed decision about where I fall on it. In hospitals, there are clinical ethics consult services where um, doctors can call a service to come help them understand how they should proceed with a right. ethically tricky issue. And we're starting to see that happen in research ethics as well. You know, Stanford, for example, has had a research consult service for a number of years now. It doesn't get as much volume as the clinical ethics consult, but I think all of this is to say that in the research ethics space, we need to continue to develop and refine refine that. And this LC perspective is kind of how at least I have been trying to look at and understand these topics of interest. Yeah. And I guess you can, there'll be areas where 
one conflicts with the other. So you, something might be legal, but we don't think it's ethical or, right. or, or vice versa. And, and I, that gives you a starting point to say in this particular case, which, which one, you know, do we need to try to change the law or do we need mm-hmm. to, um, you know, in, in, in many cases, the ethical thing to do is to break the law if the law is not, uh, correct right so th- right. That, that makes sense thank you i'd i'd be interested in circling back to the um representativeness point that you made earlier as well i there was a recent uh uh i don't know if it was i think it was a paper that came out maybe four four six months ago that said basically not much has changed in the last five years in terms of about five years ago 85 percent of people in genetic studies were from a caucasian ethnicity background and about five years later it's essentially the same um this is clearly an issue for for reasons you've you've stated earlier in the podcast do you see a way out what is the what is the strategy um you know what do we need to do to do better here besides funding bodies like the nih and and um you know, researchers taking an active role in in actually doing it what is, is are there other things that we should be doing yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult question because communities of color, particularly in the U.S., have a mistrust of scientific research, medical research, and rightly so. You know, Tuskegee is kind of the classic example of that. Um, and so trying to build back up that trust is an important first step. I think that we need to be better about building community advisory boards to coincide with our research you know, making sure that we are trying to understand the perspectives of people who we want to be represented in our research um, and who have not been represented in our research and try and understand why. But I think that one of the biggest hurdles is really that um, there is this mistrust of doing, having research conducted on you, of giving away your data um, to researchers and of not not having clarity on what that's going to be used for. Um, and I think because we've, you know, we've talked a couple of times about how fast the field is moving and what if I were to today give a DNA sample for research, I would not real reliably be able to predict what that sample is going to be used for five years from now. And do I still feel comfortable with what those uses are five years from now? So there, there are a bunch of questions that need to be identified uh, and answered to try and solve this inform- this problem. And I wish I had a more concrete solution to it, but you know, I think it, it's much more systemic maybe than we think yeah. we think it is. Um, and if people are mistrustful of giving their samples for research, then you're not going to get those samples. And so I think, you know, trying to build those community advisory boards and have conversations with people to try and understand why is an important first step. What does a good community advisory board do or or look like? How are they involved in the research project? Are there any good examples that you have? Because I I think you're absolutely right that this can't just be, oh, the NIH says, you know, it now has to be equivalent to the to the ethnic diversity of the country, um, it actually has to be a bottom-up approach where you start local and start with the people that are going to be involved and 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 who, in theory, the research is for, um, and and work from there rather than a, a top-down approach. Have you seen any good examples of of community advisory boards? 
I don't have very much personal experience with community advisory boards. I'm currently part of a group that is trying to put one together around social science cool. genomics research. Um, I do know that uh, in Native American communities, there have been some community advisory boards to try and tackle this question of using genetic data, and in part because of gross misuses. Yeah. You know, the Havasupi is one one case of that. So I don't have much personal experience with it, but I know that at, in this group where we are trying just early stages to form one, what we're thinking about is really um, who are the different communities that might be most at risk as a result of this research. And what I mean by at risk is who historically has been harmed by this research, who is currently in a disadvantaged or disempowered position in our society. And so, um, you know, might not be the primary beneficiary of this research, in part because of the way our society is structured. And then also people who are involved in addressing issues like educational inequity or um, working on income reform, you know, how might they also interpret this research? People who are at the kind of implementation level. So we've been focusing one on almost the the kind of demographic level, uh, who are the people demographically who might be most misserved by this research? And then who are the people that are currently doing implementation efforts to try and change our society and the way it's structured? Um, and how do both of those groups understand and make sense of genetics research? What are their concerns with it? What do they want to know more about? Things like that. I think that's amazing. I am, I know you're in the early stages of it, but it sounds like you all have a, a really good plan. I'm looking forward to hearing how it unfolds. Um, I, I absolutely think it's the right way to do it. Um, and I think you said, yeah, getting people there who, who have been historically or could be harmed. I think probably also people who are expected to benefit from it and then other people who can help shape it um, and, and just engaging really. I think that's great. Um, I'm conscious of time. I know you're, uh, you've got a full day ahead of you because you're on the West Coast. Um, to close off here, I was, I was wondering if we could just do two things. The first would be um, if people want to keep up with you and, and your work, where they can find you on Twitter, your website, et cetera. And then also I'm interested in what you are most excited about over the next um, year or two um, in terms of your research, life otherwise, um, and then maybe we can we can catch up on it and uh, whenever something exciting happens. Sounds good. So if you'd like to follow my work, you can follow me on Twitter at DaphMartz, or you can check out my website, DaphneMarchenko.com. And in terms of what I'm looking forward to most over the next couple of years, so... I am starting to test the waters of writing a book with one of my colleagues, Amazing. an adversarial collaborative book. So uh, we'll see how that goes, Amazing. if that goes, but I'm excited to explore the possibility. What is it going to be about? Are you allowed to say, I know sometimes you're not allowed to say this early. I think it's early enough and we're undefined enough. <laughs> I can give very general terms because that's all we have. But looking at the ethical and policy um, questions around social science genomics from two differing perspectives. That's great. That's really great. Well, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate you. This is one of the favorite interviews I've ever done. I've learned uh, so much and I just really appreciate you taking the time. 
Thank you. This is the first time that we've done this, but I'm really glad that we are. I'm going to do a little bit of a fact check slash addendum, and I definitely have to say thank you to Daphne for listening back to the episode and following up with some corrections. So there are two that we have. The first one is at around 20 minutes and 40 seconds, Daphne said that polygenic scores for educational attainment explain around 9% of the variance, but she checked up on herself and found out that the actual figure is about 11 to 13%. So for any of you all that were questioning that, if you really know the literature well, um, then, then there it is, 11 to 13%. And then a second point that Daphne really helpfully pointed out to me is that around 38 minutes and 10 seconds, I used the term Caucasian ethnicity. Um, and really, it's much more accurate to say European ancestry because the term Caucasian refers to a race category which has a sordid history and also from a scientific perspective is just really not a very well-defined group or concept. So it doesn't make sense really to use the term Caucasian ethnicity or, or even really Caucasian ancestry when having these kind of discussions. So I thought that it would be useful just to include this, as I'm sure there are lots of others uh, out there like me that get these terms mixed up and want to make sure they get it right. So thanks again if you've made it all the way to here. And as always, don't hesitate to get in touch with any questions, ideas, or follow-up. <laughs>